Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, JP Barrick, and this is Digital Gold. Known to many as the Bitcoin kid, I started mining cryptocurrency out of my parents' basement back in 2013. The goal of this show is to simplify the crypto world and explore how it changes the way the world thinks about money through conversations with thought leaders in this space. JP Barrick is the founder and CEO of Orem Capital Ventures. All opinions expressed by JP and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Orem Capital Ventures. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. My guest today is Warren Whitlock. Warren is a business storyteller with a vast network and a mission to help brands improve the results of their digital marketing. Throughout his career, he has created new strategies to use influence and persuasion to help his clients to achieve their goals. Warren says, I set hard sales goals and measured performance, but never forgot that people hate being sold, but love to buy. Warren Whitlock has been an entrepreneur in the computer publishing and media industries. He looks for collaborations where brands can share resources, extend their reach, and give customers an experience they'll want to share with others. Warren is currently partnering with IBM Futurists and a few brands and startups, along with keynotes, where he can engage with executives transforming their organizations for an abundant future. I'd like to welcome Warren Whitlock to the podcast. Warren, how are you doing today? Howdy. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be alive. Ah, I'm great to hear that. So it's a beautiful day today, Tuesday, election day, but we're not going to talk about too much about that. But as we jump into the question, the first opener we have here, I'm endlessly fascinated by all the very projects that you're constantly working on. It leads me to my first question, which is when you meet someone who is not familiar with your background and they ask you the age old question of what do you do or how do you spend your time? How do you even begin to answer that one? What's your go-to stock answer? Uh, my favorite way to answer that is I try to be an enigma. <laughs> so I, I thought of having business cards made, then I realized that uh, I never stay on one thing long enough to get business cards made. But uh, I like a variety of projects. I I started out out of college uh, selling radio advertising, uh, a little bit of newspaper actually, and then some radio advertising. That's a, oh, first 10 years of my career was broadcasting. And uh, back then, what I really loved about my job was I was working in a small town, and uh, we were the only radio station. There were six newspapers, so that was our competition, and we were very close to major markets in Northern California. And so we had to do something unique. There were no ad agencies. There was no professional you know, marketing being done other than the stuff we got from outside. And so we were constantly creating things and helping people, and I learned to sell. First of all, I learned that... Uh, what I, you know, what you said about about me that I, I'd rather find people that want to buy than waste my time trying to talk somebody into something, and it's especially true now. But we can get into that later. And I was doing that, and what I really loved about the job was I could sit down and talk to anybody about anything. And because I worked for the radio station, it was exotic enough in a suburban community uh, that you know people would want to know about that. And then how does that work? How would radio advertising help my business? Or what, you know, I, I told my boss we should be doing something like this. So I was constantly helping people talk about their business problem. And it was different every day. When I met with a guy once who had co-op money. That's when the manufacturer says, we'll reimburse you if you run ads. And he was in the oil business. It was actually, I think it was Chevron. It was one of the big companies. And uh, he had this, you know, fund of money that he could spend, but he was, because he was uh, catering to farms, uh, you know, he just, you know, he didn't, wasn't selling come to my gas station or anything. 
And so, you know, what can we do? We're, we're not the farmer's radio station. What can we do with this? And, you know, the interesting things I found out about his business was much more interesting than what the ads we ended up running. And it was just like that every day. And that, throughout my career, that's what I've looked for. There have been times when I got really got, you know, stuck into the rut. I ran one business for, for what I call the 17 years in the suburbs raising children. <laughs> and, you know, we pivoted, we changed, we it was in it was in PC, so we were oh, there was always something different we were doing as new things came out. The internet came along during that time, the mid '90s, you know. So it was something new that way. But once I got out of that and realized what I really liked to do was help people find the strategy that they needed to get to the next step to be successful to get their goals. So today, every time I talk to somebody, which you know would be the same as you know talking to you now, is what's your goal? You know, the first thing I ask you when you invited me on the program, what, what's the goal here? What do you want to talk about? Uh, how can I help people? And once we get into that, then it's, uh, you know, pretty easy. So I guess really goal seeker would be a more a closer title. But that just, you know, that gets really muddied up with the people saying, I'm in the goals business. I'll help you set and meet goals. Now, I, you know, that's not me. I But I do want to know what a goal is and get to that and really you know, make a difference. Cause like, why bother getting up in the morning if you're not going to change the world? That's a great line. Why bother getting up in the morning if you're not going to change the world? Recently, I was actually learned a little bit more about how there was a cycling team in the UK and how they had wanted to try to win some more gold medals. And so they basically said, we're going to only focus on five of the top things that are going to drive results and improvements. And over the past just two weeks, I've been trying to really understand what the, those five things are for me to focus on and understanding that if you do focus on just five things and you can bring 1% improvements every day, you'll really see those, those compounding returns. So <laughs> you probably can talk on that, I bet. You're, you're already talking about the dark side of what my philosophy of life brings because I am working on new and interesting things and it's normal for, for us to want to find the, the novel. It's interesting. We don't want change. We want things to be, you know, dependable, consistent. At the same time, we like to see something novel. We, you know, that's why, you, you know, you look across the street, the guy seems to be doing better than you. Uh, what's, he, what's he got that I'm missing? But th the truth is, if you really want to be successful, that five things rule is just fantastic. I had a friend that, di that did magic. He put himself through college doing magic shows. And he used to love, like I think every magician would, I've dabbled a bit in that. Uh, you know, you want to learn the new trick. You want to find something. Once you master something, you want to move on to the next one. And he had a very wise mentor tell him that he needed five tricks. And so when I met my friend, it's been, oh, nearly 20 years ago, he was uh, way, way far away from that. In fact, he'd grown that business into having a lot of magicians work for him and then shut it down and do something completely different and was in three different careers by the time I met him. But uh, what he taught me about it was once he figured out to have the five tricks that he did well, they, they could always call him. And he was doing one trick he called the greatest card trick you will ever see. And, and he used that line over and over again in the trick, NLP, setting things up. It was just magnificent to watch him. I've watched him do it 50 times, and I can't tell you anything about how the trick is done. Just that, you know, every time it's just amazing to watch the audience, not the trick itself, the audience about how he does that. And, and because he can do that so dependably, it's like driving a car or riding a bike. If you get good at it, 
it's your brain takes over and does it subconsciously. And then that's when you really are allowed to be creative. And I don't think most people and, you know, are, are taught about how to focus on just five or four things in their day to day and really understand what they want. Because like you said, we're always comparing ourselves like, oh, the guy across the street, he has this. I want that. You know, how am I going to get there? I need to do what he's doing. And I think that kind of brings me to my, my second question, which or, which is how has your view of the world as a nonconformist helped you get to where you are today? And how did you begin to adopt this view? I myself <laughs> identify as, as a nonconformist and st- I guess started identifying as one in, in the early high school days where I was like, Bitcoin's the future. Let's build on top of this. I was, uh, yeah, I was junior high school and I found a postcard. You know, you can buy a postcard uh, back before we all printed our, our own things and sent them an email. Uh, I was at a, uh, it was a swap meet and I saw somebody selling postcards. Uh, the big thing was, uh, the new thing then was, uh, uh posters that would, that you could use under fluorescent lights, uh, under uh, black light. Uh, that was a b- big thing, brand new, uh, this would have been, you know, late sixties. Uh, so, you know, kind of the end of the whole hippie era, psychedelic and whatnot. And I remember going there and I couldn't afford a poster. Poster was like $3. I couldn't afford that, but they had postcards. So I'm just rifling through the postcards, and I found one that said, I, I tried to be a nonconformist, but they wouldn't have me. <laughs> and I barely understood what, the, what it meant. <laughs> but I bought it, you know, because it was only a nickel. Um, and, uh, and displayed it in my room for years. And, you know, I, I, you know, it's I just like amazing that I hit upon that, and it's so close to my philosophy. Um, I don't want to be, I think Groucho Marx said, uh, I don't want to be a member of any group that would have me as a member. Mm. Uh, and and I, I get that. At the same time, I am somewhat of a joiner. I have been, you know, involved in lots of uh, very, very much normal, traditional kind of, of things. I'm, I'm married for 42 years. You know, I went, to, I went to college like I was supposed to. But uh, it's always kind of feeling like I didn't quite fit in. Like, they were picking 10 people for the team and I was number 11, but number 10 fell out and I got promoted. Yeah. You know, like uh, that's kind of how I felt about life. And, uh, so I get that, I get the nonconformist, but you gotta be really careful when you decide to be a nonconformist that you're not going to try to fit in. Uh, and so, so a certain thing about confidence, uh, real confidence is walking into a room not thinking that you're the best, thinking that it just doesn't matter about the rest of the world. Hmm. That's, I would say that's a, that's a very strong quote, quote and a good way to look at it uh, because, yeah, as there's a fine line between being a nonconformist and then being, I think, someone who is stuck up and thinks they're the best person in the room, as you kind of hinted at, where really it's nonconformists is that you know, their opinion is they don't really necessarily care what everyone else's opinion about the subject is because they have their help, their own strong convictions that they hold about, you know, for my, for me, it was Bitcoin and money. Sure. Well, there's a, there's the idea of resisting, which is popular in politics now. And this is, this is not a position in politics at all. It's just the, the word resist. We've got all these uh, non-rules about everything does. We, we form everything by a committee and we do all the, basically, why are you here? What's your goal? Back to my my original thing, I said that, you know, what I'm looking for in life, what's your goal? What would you like to have done? Are you want to take the 1% out and shoot them? You know, whatever it is, we can talk about it. You know, that's an insane goal. But, you know, whatever you think is going to change everything, well, we just like to have all their money distributed to everybody else. Well, you know, live a little. You'll find out why that doesn't work. And, you know, find out some easier, better ways to do it. 
yeah, there's so many times we just go out really ready to go out and set the world on fire, and we we don't really know what we're going to do when we get it. It's like the uh, the dog that likes to chase chase cars. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, what are you going to do if you catch one? <laughs> Talking about setting the world on fire, I have a question about your first social media platform that you made an account on. And do you remember what drove you to get on that platform? And then kind of on that note, well, where do you see these platforms going? And do you see any next big iterations in the marketing space? Well, actually, depending on how you look at it, because I, I can define email as a social media platform. Okay. But, you know, let's move aside from in the 80s, I, was, I belonged to... Uh, BBS bulletin board systems. And I, you know, I, we even ran one for a little while and CompuServe and those kind of things. And it was social. It was very important to me. I had small children. I had just started in business. I had gotten out of that career I talked about of, you know, being the salesman for the radio station. And I found myself alone a lot. So socially, I needed to do that. And CompuServe, that's, that was the, the motivation that got me on doing that. I would, you'd have to log in with a modem. Uh, I'd run a bill of several hundred dollars a month uh, doing it. And uh, along the way, I, I justified it because um, I could sell things and I sold just enough <laughs> to about break even on it. Uh, if I didn't count the idea, you know, that I was spending 40, 50 hours a month doing this, but so much feeding my mind of learning things, talking to people, I'd moved into a suburban com community where just, I mean, it was back where I'd grown up and none of the guys I knew from high school or junior college back then, none of them wanted to take off and go get lunch. They are all very busy in their little business or doing whatever their thing was or, or taking off and going to some job. Yeah. And I like, but I, I miss this because, uh, you know, it's a big thing I did when I, oh, I sold advertising was to take people to lunch. And uh, half the time it was just my employees or, you know, uh, whoever, just an idea to get away and do something different in the middle of the day. And uh, we've lost that. I, you know, it's not done the same way today as it was back then. And so I would get on CompuServe and I talked to people and there was people that have an opinion about a certain amount of uh, kind of technology or whatever. And actually the people that were entrepreneur and wanting to trade and some import export people fast forward now to, you know, getting on the internet and doing some of the same things. There was Usenet groups were very close to that. But then there were people trying to, to build communities. There was one trying to build a community on, on your surname. I don't remember where this was, but somebody said, you know, your last name's Whitlock. You should join this community. And I did. And about then I started realizing just because somebody wants one of these things to go doesn't make it work. It, you have to have some something that's enough people that want to bring it together either one really overworked forum leader or you know a bunch of people that want to come in they all are into this enough that they're going to spend the five hours a week it takes to make make the thing work and that's when i really learned about community building by the time what's called social media came along is on something called rise r-y-z-e in the early aughts and a lot of good networking was going on there it was more like linkedin is today. Uh, and LinkedIn then uh, came out in 2004. And so by that time, I, I, I had quite a, uh, a, a newsletter list. Uh, we mailed newsletters for, for my, my company back then. And then as I got into more like the consulting kind of thing, I was using some of those same contacts to build, uh, you know, the weekly mailer or whatever it was I would mail out. 
And so I found that building the community was important. I started a trade association in the mid 90s. The first thing I did, I didn't want to be running it or doing the work. Uh, so I let, you know, I said, we should have somebody else do that. They ended up electing me the first president anyway. Uh, <laughs> I found out that's the guy that has to sign everybody up. Uh, and so that led me to grow a large mailing list, which got me into, you know, when I got on LinkedIn, I just accepted everybody's uh, invitation. And I probably went two, three years without much caring about it until I read about Twitter. So I had a MySpace account by then. Twitter had come out. Two things happened. They went to South by Southwest where people started using it as like a, a text chain to be able to say, here's where the cool party is going to be tonight. And people would check and they'd see it on Twitter and they'd just change their plans for the evening to get to the party where the cool people were. Uh, and then Facebook opened up to where the adults could get on, was just uh, colleges for a while. And then they started opening up their API so other other uh, services could use it. And the, and the first that I know of was Twitter. And so Facebook and Twitter became my thing to do summer of 2007. And by February of 2008, I was uh, in publishing and promoting books was what I was doing for a living back then. I looked up Twitter on Amazon and there was no such thing as a book about Twitter. And so I go like, well, this is pretty cool. I know how to get a book written. Let me put together a book and we'll have the first book out on Twitter. We ended up making it 375 pages long and took six months to put it together. And then I found myself becoming, you know, somewhat famous for that. I could, I could have my uh, podcast. Uh, we, it was Blog Talk Radio, so we called it an online radio program because uh, podcasts hadn't quite, quite cut on this the same way. I've all I love the word podcast. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't something to call things uh, back there. What's that? Twelve years ago, the subtitle of our book was how how uh, social media and mobile marketing are going to change everything about the way we do business and live our lives, and that's what we were saying in mid two thousand eight. And I still don't think we know. People would have me on on podcasts back then and ask me, "Hey, is it too late to get into social media?" <laughs> and I say, "No, not at all." Uh, the the whole of the the 20th century was us learning about mass marketing, mass production, mass distribution. And then social media is the, the culmination of all that. It's two-way communication with a brand, uh, whether that's a person, a company, a, a product, Bitcoin, whatever it is, you can find birds of a feather all over the place. And certainly we've eliminated the need to find a mass audience and push something to it anymore. It's now about uh, individual one-to-one. Uh, other thing people would ask me back then is, what, uh, uh, how did you get to have so many followers? And I'm going like, you know, just one at a time. <laughs> um, I talk to one person at a time. Now, at some point, I have 500,000 followers. At some point, I, you know, you, you just know I'm never going to get to talking to all of those people. But a lot of them don't want to. There's a fair minority of them that are, are lurkers that read what I, what I say and never do any kind of action and they may hit a like occasionally, but I can't get a good count of how many of my followers have ever liked a post or retweeted it. I, j I just don't know. Um, you know, and then it gets really complicated when you go from channel to channel. So yeah, that's, um, but the, the big change that we've had is that we're now talking about people with a, what 
what could be a one-to-one conversation. It's interesting that you you kind of hit on a, a lot of a lot of key points that I want to definitely dig into. One of those was incentives and how you mentioned that in the early days of social media, they realized that you could make these social media networks. I think we saw that with blockchains a lot and with ICOs and that you can make these networks, but unless you had the right and proper incentives, not everyone was going to join, people weren't going to participate and the network actually wouldn't flourish. And so I guess my question to you is, as social media is improving and now we kind of have this this area where we have dominant players in this space, do you see a blockchain technology coming in and potentially helping change the incentive structure and maybe change how influencers are being paid, are being compensated for their content in this iteration of digital marketing? Is there anything there that you see with the kind of the two blockchain and digital marketing coming together? Well, you're really asking about two things there. You're talking about incentivizing and you're talking about getting paid. The getting paid part is tricky because the smaller your audience, the less it's the, the less it's worth, right? Uh, but if you have one follower and it happens to be somebody, you know, if, if the president follows you and follows nobody else, well, then you've got something. A famous example of that was Conan O'Brien uh, when he was between gigs after the whatever late night wars he was in. You know, he just decided to open up a Twitter account and follow one person. And he put it out on whatever videos he was producing or he was going to follow this one person. Well, that every TV station started looking for that person to go interview and figure out who she was. It's just some rando that he picked. Um <laughs> Well, we never know. Maybe maybe somebody's cousin got picked. But, <laughs> uh, like but as far as we know, it's just a random woman got picked. And she got a little bit of fame for, for doing that. And I love the example because it it isn't about uh, how many you have. It's about the quality. Like, I know for sure that my 500,000 uh, uh, followers on Twitter are worth just a tiny fraction of what your 500 or 5,000 are worth. Uh, on a per capita, they're just, they're just not as productive. But the, the, when it's real people you know and build a relationship, that's something. So imagine as we get into more of doing this, we can track who those people are. If I knew when somebody followed me that they had an interest in mining and I could say something about your show and get them interested over there and make that connection, they're going to remember me. Another popular thing in my my view of the of the world here is Inception. Uh, you know, there's the movie about every every idea comes from an inception point. You know, the movie of going dreams within dreams and all that are is ridiculous. Uh, you know, but the, <laughs> or maybe not. Uh, but the philosophy of everything comes from one point. So in networking now, if I introduce somebody I know to somebody you know, and we're connected and we're the nodes, you know, whether or not that came together because we are doing this podcast or because we do some business together or whatever it is, it no longer needs to be that, you know, my listener's cousin who finds out about, you know, your friend's mining operation and, and one of the investors in that, and those two people go off and do whatever, you know, they, they date and get married or they form a company together or whatever it is, the whole network is uplifted in a way that we've never been able to measure at all. We know society is better off because people connect, but we've not been able to measure any of that. And so I, I'm um, working with one company now that's with, that's developing something that when uh, when you click on a link, 
a remnant of that link goes back up to where the source is and you can tell what's happened. So if I put out a, a, a link and it gets, you know, tweeted, retweeted and uh, shared uh, that we can kind of trace where it's gone to. And this, there's room for some incentive systems in there. But people don't want to be social to get paid. So there's, I've seen this like, oh, gosh, I'm, I, it must be 50 times now that somebody's come to me and say, we've got something better than Facebook. We're, we're going to incentivize everybody. <laughs> and I'm going, yeah, and how does your MLM work? You know, it's like some of us just don't want to get that involved in it. Uh, with, you know, who's your downline? What's everything? You know, when you, you can get really carried away with some of those things. The difference is there's now like the, there's a, the browser. What's that? Uh, the one that pays in bats. Brave Bowser. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, that, and I interviewed somebody on my podcast that, uh, that was ex- showing a way to accept ethernet for anybody, any, any podcast you want. I just needed to put an Ethereum short address into the description of my show. And I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. And then I got asking him questions about it. Well, to make it work, the person giving the Ethereum or yeah, uh, or whatever he was the token, it might have just been another ERC, that the, the payment would require somebody to use that guy's player. Well, Oh. Yeah, now you're into the player wars. And yeah, how are you going to incentivize people to download this? Well, we're going to we're going to pay them. We'll give them so many coin and, you know, uh, the tokenomics just don't work out that well for for most of you. We're we're not all as good as Satoshi is coming up with a with a new way of paying people. Um <laughs> so, you know, and some of that there's some room for some of that. But the biggest thing I learned about uh, selling to people and, and influence persuasion is getting away from the idea that everybody wants another bo- dollar in their pocket. A lot of people, most of what happens in the world, in fact, happens without that. You know, it's uh, like Gary Vaynerchuk says, what's the ROI on mom? You know, you you can't figure that out. And I'm as much of a capitalist business person as there is in my way of thinking. In my brain, I'm trying to calculate it all out. And the more I've learned to let go of that and just say, let me do what's right and everything else is going to be okay. Uh, I've learned that the, the, the amazing power of reciprocity and reciprocity is often taught as a persuasion technique. Uh, uh, and it gets, people get into the quid pro quo, the I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. But what real reciprocity is, in it, at least in the psychological uh, principle of this, is I'm going to scratch your back because it itches. <laughs> And I'm going to do that because it's the right thing to do and uh, and not have that expectation of when you're going to pay me. And the more you learn to give without that expectation, that's what it means when we hear the uh, religious teaching, all philosophies have it in. It's what they told you about Christmas. It's better to give than receive. It doesn't matter if you get all the money and be Scrooge McDuck if you got nobody to share it with. <laughs> Exactly. I was actually listening when you were talking about the connection and how that those one connection, you can meet one person, introduce them. You know, if they're wanting to be interested in Bitcoin mining, you can point them over here. If they're interested in food, you can point them to someone else that you know. I think with the with the advent of of the, of the technology we now have in our phone and 5G, being able to not only send and upload a live stream video, but to be also able to download someone else's live video as it's coming in. And kind of getting those similar interactions, those those interactions you would receive at a party if you were you know meeting people just by swiping on your phone. Where do you see 
this with with technology coming to the I guess the the forefront and video technology and streaming coming to the forefront, how do you see the ability to send video and receive video in real time to really take over social media or build a new type of connection that allows for that more intimate connection that's almost instantaneous with either one user or thousands of fans, you know, as COVID has kind of brought everyone together to, to stay in their houses. How do you see that, I guess, working out? I think that's just the natural extension of where, of where we're, where we're headed with things. The only reason we haven't used video from the start is that transmitting video in real time was impossible. You know, my first streaming media project was over wires. My, my new uh, junior high school with cables in 1969. And we immediately wanted to push something into the classrooms, right? Uh, and there was, you know, it was a small enough place. We could share everything. We do that. And I started envisioning what it would be like to be able to be there. And I think we always want to have that ability to connect and connect on a deeper level. And it, it really, as you were describing that, I got thinking of one of the things that came up when we were talking about social media early on in that, you know, in the heyday of that craze decade ago. And they, you know, they go like, uh, yeah, but don't you, don't you hate it how everybody's just staring down at their phones? And so I found a picture of taken in a subway car from the 1930s. Everybody was staring down at their newspaper. Uh, things haven't changed that much. <laughs> but I think of it as a, as a TED Talk I, I got about intimate moments. And they told the story of a baker had to get up at 2 a.m. to go, you know, bake bread. And his wife would get up at uh, six or seven, get the kids ready for school. Uh, he'd be having lunch and they could have a brief interaction by phone, you know. And again, this is an old story. So, you know, just the fact that they were doing it. Seemed, today, it seems like nothing, though. By the time he got home, she was off at work. And, you know, he probably was going to bed by the time she got home from work at night. So, you know, as they were going through their normal daily routine with kids and uh, jobs at different hours and stuff, what kept what kept things going was this the sense of intimacy, and and video just really brings that out. Where you can send a you can in uh, in China they're not using uh, SMS and Twitter quite the same. There's a lot more use of of short audio messages, and and there's places where there's uh, traffic jams that'll last an hour, and you don't know if you can get to the meeting, so they'll start the meeting and just include the person. With these, uh, with a bit of audio input, he can listen, and then he can send a message. And Zoom, of course, we're seeing just makes that you know available to anybody can join a meeting from anywhere. And of course, you know the silver lining from the pandemic is we're learning that yeah, all this remote technology works even better. So when you see somebody who is uh, you know holding up their phone to take a picture at the to stream something at the concert, it's not because they don't know how to be present. It's because they want their cousin to see it. Uh, we're extending that intimacy more and more. And there's got to be some kind of balance. You know, if you're spending your whole day trying to figure out whether or not your Instagram photo is going to get uh, get enough likes, you've got you got a problem. But that problem's bigger than the, than the platform. So I think in the future, what we're going to see is more and more of that. I've got a two-year-old grandchild who, who phones us regularly on, on, uh, on FaceTime. Wow. And, the, you know, and, and like, you know, she just stayed with us for three days. We don't tell her how to use the phone. She grabs it and starts using it. Uh, that's the future. She just expects that if she wants to talk to grandma, she's going to, you know, 
She may need a little bit of help of the dialing part, but you know, she's going to get on and, uh, you know, and my poor wife has to spend <laughs> 20 minutes at the drop of a hat. Just, you know, when the kid gets bored and goes off and does things and comes back and, um, <laughs> and she's waiting on the FaceTime call. <laughs> by the way, I say my poor wife, she never complains about it. You know, she loves, loves that she can do this. And I look at it and I go like, oh, gosh, what's this going to become? It's telepresence all the time. So you don't need to go to a big office if you can be with all the people. The other things that makes it there, does this replace face-to-face? No. It's just that, you know, until we get the technology to beam ourselves halfway around the world, it'll, it'll be more convenient to do a lot of this stuff by the, by the technologies we do have. So, uh, you know, this year will be the time when people are complaining that they don't get to go to Thanksgiving. And next year, they're going to be looking forward to it in a way they haven't in years. You're exactly right. One of the things you mentioned was intimacy. And I found it interesting that you, you know, intimacy is kind of being created by these direct connections with either the creator, the influencer, you know, the child's grandmother. I wanted to jump to another topic, which was about Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. Do you remember when you first heard about Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining? And did you end up getting a miner? Did, can you tell a little bit more about that story if there is one? I, I saw the white paper when it came out. So when I read about that, my interest in blockchain got big. So, you know, one, one uh, you know, famous big, big deal friend in it and, uh, and, and that interest put those things together. I just had to start looking for it. And that's about the time I started thinking of myself as a futurist. You know, and I got officially that title from IBM in 2014. But uh, even back then, it was like, how can I use my platform and tweet about this and the new technology? And so the same goes for 5G, for uh, Internet of Things, IoT, uh, for all the technologies coming out, especially machine learning and, and AI. But the nice thing about blockchain is it's one, it's a foundation that goes everywhere. And fortunately, because of the crypto and the startups or needing advice and, and, you know, and I have a large audience there. It's all come together that it's a good way to make a living too. But uh, all of this technology, you got to look at it. How's it going to really help people in, in the future? And if not, you know, what are you going to spend all this, this money you make? I mean, really think about it. You do really well and you can, you know, sit around playing Xbox all day and uh, meanwhile, you got a machine going, it's mining coin, and you can buy anything you want. Well, if you never, you know, leave the house, how much money do you need? Mom wants you to move out, by the way. Um, <laughs> and it's not to get, yeah, it's not to get Lambos and, um, you know, and, and, and make it rain at the club and all the, you know, all of the, the, the Hollywood version of what, of what wealth is, it's can, where can I really make a difference? And that's why you see somebody like Bill Gates has been, you know, he's been at it now for over 15 years that he has, you know, focused on giving away his money. And he does a good job of it that uh, Warren Buffett gave him money to give away, um, you know. And, and so, you know, he learned late in life. I learned to I learned to give it all away a lot earlier in life. Um, see, here you go, kids. Here you go. Take this funny money. But on a more serious note, I actually, you know, it was interesting that you say that because when I was in high school finding out about Bitcoin, this idea of you know why are we all going to school to go to college to get a degree to make start making money 
was interesting to me because at that point I had a robotics camp and I was making, you know, thirty to forty thousand dollars a year running this robotics camp as a as a 16, 17 year old kid. And I was understanding that maybe there was more to life than making money. And I think that's why Bitcoin being, you know, a monetary policy where it would hold its value, it was scarce, just had a much better monetary, I guess, environment to build wealth on top of, which I feel like is one of the hardest things or one of the biggest problems facing people today, which is Basically, they can't build their wealth on anything because it's always being printed. Their money is losing value. And if you don't own real estate, if you don't own these hard assets, building that security to be able to fulfill those those Maslow's hierarchy needs that you mentioned is very hard to do. And so, one of my la- my last question to you is is what problem do you face every day, or that you think a lot of people face every day that nobody has solved yet? That maybe a, a technology like blockchain or machine learning or anything else we've been talking about, social media could could solve or could help solve and move that in the right direction? Well, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. You know, it's, I, I always hate to pick a favorite because, you know, I don't conform. You no, know, one thing I'm thinking about, especially as we've discussed today, is trust. Trust is one thing that's really lacking in our, in our, in our world. And, you know, Bitcoin and crypto, it, it, it actually is introducing trust. So, you know, sometimes we talk about it as I can spend Bitcoin with you and I don't have to trust you. But it is the trust. This has been not only amazing to hear your social media background, but the, the whole conversation of value and intimacy. And I want to give the, the listeners an opportunity to connect with you online. So where is the best place for them to reach out when they're done listening? Any place you find my name and I'm not a former Obama administration employee. <laughs> I'm the old white guy. The black guy is not me. Uh, Warren Whitlock. And uh, I'm on Twitter, at Warren Whitlock, LinkedIn, Facebook, Telegram. Uh, WhatsApp, you know, I'm, I'm on all those things and you can find me or warrenwhitlock.com. Well, thank you, Warren, for, for coming on again to the Digital Gold Podcast. All right, great. I look forward to, to seeing this uh, get out there and help some people. No, I'm excited to get it out there. Well, thanks again, guys, for coming on and Bitcoin and mine on. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Digital Gold. Be sure to subscribe so you're notified when the new episode drops. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review to support our journey to become the number one crypto podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, mine on.